Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. We would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at 9.15 or 10.45 a.m. at our new location at 5103 Pegasus Court. To learn more about what Sunday mornings at Collective look like, please head to mycollective.church and click on what to expect. There are going to be a lot of great things at Collective this summer as Maryland opens up, so stay tuned for upcoming events and announcements as we continue to try to make an impact in our city. Now here's Sunday's message. Hey, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Good. Oh, you guys are better in first hour. Um, if we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Austin Hedge. I'm the associate pastor at a church in Baltimore called uh, The Foundry. Uh, I have been a friend of Michael's for many, many years and uh, have just loved seeing what you guys have done uh, here in Frederick. Uh, I was at launch Sunday and I've been here uh, many times since. Uh, and each time I'm just more and more excited about what you guys are tangibly doing uh, to reach your neighbors and to care for the people here in the city and to love them well. So uh, I am excited to be here with you today. Um, do you ever wonder where certain phrases and idioms come from in our, or in our language and in our culture? Like if someone, someone's talking to you and they say a phrase and it sounds uh, kind of strange, it's a metaphor that maybe you've, maybe you've heard before, but you don't know where it stems from. A lot of times I'll get sidetracked in a conversation when someone uses that, just trying to think through, okay, well, where, where does this come from? What is the origin story of this phrase? So let me share a couple with you that are just kind of fun. Uh, the first one is riding shotgun. So if we're going to lunch, I'm going to hop in. Uh, I'm not driving. I'm going to ride shotgun. I'm going to ride in the front seat next to the driver. Uh, this stems from the Wild West that the person who sat next to the driver actually was equipped with a shotgun because they need to protect themselves against any robbers. Here's another one. Uh, you've heard the phrase, cost an arm and a leg, which we know is something that's extremely expensive, right? Uh, and, and this stems from the 18th century, where if you see portraits from the 18th century, a lot of times they just have their torso and their heads, because to add their limbs meant to cost more money. It was extra expensive. Uh, how about this one? Uh, bite the bullet. Uh, my wife and I just recently bought a house, and man, we had to bite the bullet on so many things to just get into this place, to get, get right before we get there, the, the pleasant and the, the painful things uh, to be in there. This stems from the 1800s when doctors would be in battlefields. Uh, they didn't have anesthesia, so they would give their patients a bullet to actually bite on when they were feeling pain. There's a way to cope with the pain. So today we're going to be talking about uh, an idiom that I'm sure you have used, an uh, uh, idiom that I'm sure you have heard as well called uh, the writing on the wall. Uh, this stems from uh, Daniel chapter 5. I know Michael last week talked about Daniel chapters 1 through 3. And while this entire series isn't focused on Daniel, uh, we do have these two weeks back to back talking about uh, this book. Uh, throughout this series, you're going to be talking about other uh, different texts from the Old Testament so let me note uh, just a few things before we dive in, some of them based on what Michael talked about last week, some of them uh, connected to our current context uh, in Daniel 5. So Daniel is not written in some short amount of period, uh, like if you read one of uh, the Gospels where we learn about Jesus, like the Gospel of John, it's written over a three-year period. Like that's, that's the entire story is three years. In Daniel, 
it spans basically Daniel's entire lifetime. It's, it's like a highlight reel of what's going on. Uh, we, we know in Daniel 1 that Daniel is a teenager. We know in Daniel 5 he's in his 80s. So over the course of five chapters, he, he grows up a lot there. And we, and we know this because of historical sources and, and not necessarily telling us exactly what we learned from the Bible, but uh, basically saying that these kings who were in charge of Babylon were in charge during these certain dates. And so we know that uh, this story takes place on the last night of the Babylonian Empire. We also know when Nebuchadnezzar reigned, uh, who we talked about last week. As Michael talked about last week as well, Daniel and his friends from Israel, uh, the Israelites, they were, they were slaves. Babylon is one of the first uh, empires to, to take over Israel. There's going to be four uh, in total uh, that, that kind of just uh, domineer over Israel. We have uh, Babylon, we have the Medes and Persians, then we have the Greeks, then we have the Romans, which we know a lot more about the last two because uh, they're more in pop culture, more in movies uh, that we know about here. But, but one of the things that they would do as, as a society is they would, they would come in when they wanted to colonialize uh, this, this group of people, and what they would try to do is kill the current culture because we don't want Israelites acting like Israelites. We want Israelites acting like Babylonians. So how would they do that? They do it in various ways, but, but one example that we actually see in the book of Daniel is they would change their names, right? So, so we know that in Daniel 1, there's these four guys that, that are mentioned, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, but it says this also in Daniel 1. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And Azariah, Abednego. So last week when you guys talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what we're using and what's written actually in Daniel 3 are their slave names. They are not going by their Israelite names. Uh, It's a way of basically killing the Israel culture, the Hebrew culture there, uh, instead going by those names, which will come up a little bit in our text today. The last thing before we kind of dive in is that we are skipping over Daniel 4. And Daniel 4 is a very strange story. Like, if you thought Daniel 3 was strange, if you think today is strange, Daniel 4 is probably the most strange out of all of them. Because King Nebuchadnezzar, who you learn about, basically turns into a, a person who is acting like a cattle. He, he kind of loses his mind, or, or some commentators think that maybe he has this rare psychiatric uh, syndrome that involves this delusion where he's transformed into an animal, And this comes as Nebuchadnezzar claims the success that Babylon is awesome because of me. And our story today references this this event, but we don't have time to unpack them both. So I'd encourage you, uh, go back this week, spend a little bit of time uh, reading Daniel 4, and then read Daniel 5 and see if it gives uh, a little bit more meaning to the text that we're going to talk about today. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and dive into Daniel 5, uh, verse 1. It says this, Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood 
and stone. So let's take a moment and just unpack a little bit about what's going on here because we're introduced to some different characters uh, than in Daniel 3. In particular, Belshazzar. Who is Belshazzar? Well, we, we know Nebuchadnezzar reigned till a certain period of time, and we know that after Nebuchadnezzar dies, there's a few people that kind of vie for power in Babylon, but only rule for a very short amount of time. And ultimately, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, Nabonidus, takes over the Babylonian Empire in 556 BC. Again, this is through historical sources, specifically Greek historical sources, uh, not necessarily even what we just read in the Bible. Uh, but, but he does doesn't really like to stay in Babylon. He likes to go on vacation and likes to go on vacation for a very, very long time. Uh, or sometimes it's even he's on the battlefield. And so what he does is when he is away, he tells his son, Belshazzar, to rule the throne and act as the de facto king. You're in charge while I'm gone. Well, why is there a party going on? Again, this is kind of a weird thing just to, to pick up and, and here's, here's a party a few reasons that are theorized. Uh, one is, is Babylon just suffered a massive, massive military loss to the Medes and the Persians. In fact, the only thing that remained in the Babylonian Empire is this one city that has a wall around it that is 25 feet by 40 feet. And I, he's inside of these walls, and some believe that he's trying to encourage his people after they've just suffered this battle. Some people believe that he's setting up himself to take over, possibly, as some sort of king or ruler uh, if, if his dad has died on the battlefield. Or, or maybe it was just that there was a customary festival that was happening, uh, which, again, we know from historical sources, there was a party going on the eve of the Babylonian Empire's fall. So, uh, what is unique about this party? There's a couple things here. First, the king was present. Typically at a party like this, the, the party wasn't for the king. The party wasn't for his wives. The party was for everyone else. The king ultimately would be in like his VIP lounge doing his own thing. Uh, it, it's like if you, you know, if you got uh, married or you've been to a wedding, the wedding's not really about the bride and the groom. The wedding is about all of the hosts, all, all of the people that are there, all of the guests. Uh, the second thing is that Belshazzar here Man, he's just, he's flexing on them because he's not holding back anything at all. He knows this is his last night, possibly. This is his last little bit, and he is going all out. He's going to bring the gold and the silver from the Jewish temples, which had been kept as a trophy, but now he's going to desecrate them. It says this in the next verse, if we keep going. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human handwriting on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together and fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. Now, CGI technology has desensitized us to how afraid Belshazzar probably is here because uh, a hand just appearing out of nowhere, we're like, oh yeah, we've seen something like that in the movie. But, but he is terrified He's terrified that this hand just appears out of nowhere uh, and begins writing this message on the wall. And it is uh, also notable here that it's done by the lampstand, which oftentimes in the Bible, lampstands act as a metaphor for something that brings light to dark places, specifically sometimes a message of light to dark places. And the New Testament refers to the church quite often as the lampstands. The king uh, calls in some people and he's like, hey, I need some help trying to interpret this. You guys are experts at interpretation of dreams, of messages, and whatnot. Uh, I need your help. 
but none of them can help him. None of them understand what is going on. It's kind of uh, miraculous. Then, then the queen mother runs in, and, and we don't know exactly who she is, but more than likely she is either uh, Nabonidus's wife or maybe she was Nebuchadnezzar's wife and remarried Nabonidus uh, after Nebuchadnezzar's death. But, but, but either way, she knows a person who can read this text, a person who can interpret it, this guy named Daniel. And she refers to him by his Hebrew name of Daniel, showing some sort of a relationship that she has built with him at some point. She recounts how Daniel was a person who was there when Nebuchadnezzar was trying to, to figure out other dreams and visions. And, and, and just in tough times, Daniel was there with her. Daniel is brought before the king. And again, Daniel's in his 80s now. He's not a teenager, as we read about earlier, but he is in his 80s, and he is offered uh, purple robes, which is the color of royalty. He's offered gold chains, which is a gift of honor, and the ability to be ranked third in the kingdom, again, only behind Belshazzar and Nabonidus. Daniel doesn't want these gifts, but, but instead he, he says, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll interpret uh, the writing for you. This is what it says if we keep going in verse 20. But when Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Daniel's reminding Belshazzar here of what happened in Daniel 4. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like, cow, uh, grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. Then I keep saying this. Daniel keeps going. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have uh, had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know nothing at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. In other words, Belshazzar, you know what happened this is, this is your kingdom that you're in charge of. You know this other guy who, who is probably the most prominent king in the history of Babylon. You know what happened to him. And, and yet you are clueless to how you got here. You're clueless uh, that the fact that actions a lot of times have consequences. You, there's no confusion to Daniel about how he got here, how Belshazzar got here, uh, because it's just a natural outcome of his own choices and his own actions. So let's keep reading. It says this in Daniel 20, uh, 5, 24. So God sent this hand to write this message. This message was written, mene, mene, tekel, and person. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and you've not measured up. Parison means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel, again, he's in his 80s. He's fearless. He's coming before the king, sharing basically a message that his time is up. The writing is on the wall for the fall of Babylon. 
And a lot of times, not just the fall of Babylon, but with that comes probably the death of the king or a lifetime imprisonment of the king because of his choices, his decisions. This chapter kind of ends a little bit anticlimactically if you read through it. It pretty much is like, and Daniel gets the rewards for, for doing this, and Belshazzar dies, and Darius the Mede takes over. The end. We get all of these details leading up, and then it's like, oh yeah, by the way, this empire dies. No big deal. Um, which you can read about later. <laughs> uh, or go on to Daniel 6, and you can read Daniel in the Lion's Den, which takes place under the next empire. Um, now, this story seems a little bit unbelievable. It seems a little bit crazy. I'll, I'll admit that, where there's this hand that appears out of nowhere. But I, but I think regardless of whether uh, you're here and you're skeptical about that or, or if you're just accepting it as like, yeah, this definitely happened. It says it in the Bible. Regardless, we can learn some things from this story. And so let me just ask a few questions that we can wrestle with uh, and think through in regards to the story. The first question is this. Where do I find my significance? Belshazzar finds himself on the verge of death, on the verge of his entire empire, which he thinks he's responsible for building. And what does he do? He starts throwing everything at the wall to prove his significance. He he starts trying to find ways that his name will last in the history book, or, or so that people who are around him will lift him up and say, you are so great. He throws a party. We look for significance in all of these wrong ways sometimes. Sometimes we, we, we look for significance through love, through creativity, through achievement, through religion, through morality. But there's problems with looking for significance in all of these things. If we look for significance in love, for example, we'll find fulfillment in someone uh, loving us. Knowing everything you know about me, you love me. Which, again, is not a bad thing. It's not bad for someone to love me uh, unconditionally. But if that's where we find our significance, it's just going to fail. It's problematic because this person cannot be substituted for the love of God. No spouse, no fiance, no boyfriend, no girlfriend, nothing. No one in your life can be godlike in their love. So if you're looking for love for your significance, you're just going to be let down. If we look for uh, significance in our creativity or our achievement, that I want my name or my art or the thing that I do to live beyond me, uh, we're going to be let down as well. Why? Because things such as creativity are so subjective and they change so quickly that something that, that is uh, notoriety right this moment may not get you any fame three years from now, may not make you significant at all to the culture three years from now. You know, every sports athlete will eventually be dethroned from being the best if you are the best, other than maybe Michael Jordan. LeBron James is not as good. So side note, um, one, one example of this, uh, this last week I was listening to a, uh, a playlist and I was uh, listening to some uh, songs that were like the 90s and the 2000s, uh, punk and like punk-like songs at, you know, Blink-182 and Taking Back Sunday and Eve 6 and Lit and some good stuff on there. I was pretty stoked to find it. It was just like a Spotify-generated thing. Uh, but then this song comes on uh, called Bring Me to Life by Evanescence. And one, I'm a little bit of a music snob, so I'm like, this is not punk. This is not punk adjacent. There's nothing punk about this song. It should not be on this playlist. But then I was taken back and I was like, man, 2003, this song was huge. It was absolutely huge. It was all over the radios. It won a ton of awards. It it, it topped charts across multiple countries. 
In fact, I looked up some of the numbers, uh, and the, the album it was featured on was sold 7 million times. And the single, just the single song, was sold 3 million in addition. For reference, now I know the music industry is way different than 2003, but uh, 7 million albums is how many Billie Eilish, Olivia Ruggiero, and, and Harry Styles have sold this year alone. Combined, all three of them. Those are three of our biggest pop stars right now, and they have sold, combined, the same amount as this band, Evanescence, who maybe you've not even heard of them since 2003, right? This album was also released uh, the same year and outperformed albums by Beyonce, Eminem, Justin Timberlake, John Mayer, Kelly Clarkson, Missy Elliott, Nelly, Coldplay, Jay-Z, Pink, and less surprising, Nickelback. <laughs> but, but today... To be honest, I don't think this would ever cross the top 40. It would never be on pop radio. Why? Because significance in music changes so quickly. This, is, this isn't like 50 years. This was 18 years ago. This is not that, that long ago. The music business is so different now that, that even how you would uh, rank the significance of this would be different because they probably wouldn't even sell a million albums now. It would be very, very different. When we look for our significance, though, and say religion or morality, uh, this is also problematic because uh, these are tools that oftentimes we use to perpetuate our own agendas further. We create these dichotomies where people who are like me are good, people who are not like me are bad. You know, we, we say this, that, that my decisions are good decisions and your decisions are bad decisions. You know, and one, just to be honest with you, one way that we actually do this, a lot of times uh, we do this even with our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ and our Christian uh, family is we'll read our Bibles and we'll be like, man, you struggle with the worst of sins. And I, I'm just going to gloss over this other thing that I don't do very well. This thing like pride or Sabbath or whatever, not a big deal. But these other things that you do, those are bad. All right, back to, back to this. Uh, many times we use these things such as religion, such as morality, to, to oppress people. Oppress people who, who are different for various reasons. And a lot of atrocities have been done throughout the course of human history in the name of, of drawing this distinction of trying to find significance because of my religion or morality. And, and if we are created beings, how we find our significance is by turning to our creator, by finding it from God. Religion uh, centers on performing good deeds for God. But as Tim Keller writes, the gospel is God through Jesus Christ has given me the perfect record, which I received by faith, and I live in grateful knowledge that he has accepted me forever. That's where you say amen if you are an amen person. Uh, this is where our significance lies, not in all of these other things that we try to achieve as people. The second question is this. What are you running from? Belshazzar is trying to run from so many things. Uh, and Daniel is among this group of people called uh, the prophets, and we read about the different prophets. And oftentimes, the prophets were these people who spoke a message... They were also ostracized and hated by their own community, people like them. Israel hated oftentimes their prophets because what they would do is they would speak out about something that, that the community or individuals were running from. 
See, for, for many of us, the writing is on the wall in some way in our lives. And yet, we're running in the opposite direction. For Belshazzar, uh, his kingdom is in peril. They've just suffered this massive military loss. It's about to fall. And more than likely, he's going to die. What does he do? He throws a party. Talk about running from something, like right there. You probably also may be running from a current reality. I may be running from that. We find ourselves doing this in big ways and in small ways. So what are you running from? Are you running from a responsibility that you have? Are you running from past decisions that you made? Or are you running from obedience to something that God has placed on your heart? Maybe he's whispered it to you. Maybe he's screaming it at you and you've said, no, 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 and I'm going to run the opposite direction. Are you running from dealing with past wounds and grudges and hurts and pains? What do you find yourself today running from? Now, uh, it's essential to note here that actions do have consequences. We, we know that in society. For Belshazzar, the writing was on the wall. The kingdom was collapsing due to his actions. There may be something that you are running from because you know there are consequences on the other side, and you don't want to face them. But with, without acknowledging the offense, without acknowledging what has happened, without acknowledging what the action is, you cannot experience the grace that comes on the other side of it. And, and collective, I, I've been here enough times and know enough of your stories to know the fact that there are people in this room who, who have gone to the other side, who have stopped running, and, and have found life on the other side. It may look different. You may lose relationships. You may lose friends. Life may be different. But that's when grace can come in. The whole point of accepting Jesus, the whole idea of it is God saying, I, or us saying to God, like, I am not enough and I need you. And if, if we're just running in the opposite direction, that grace can never fall on us. So, so take some time and admit what you're running from. And I'm sure if you fill out the digital connection card or if you see one of the leaders out in the lobby afterwards, I'm sure they would love to hear that and love to pray with you. Lastly, uh, the last question to, to ask is, what does obedience look like? Michael last week uh, mentioned that there's this misunderstanding in Christianity that, that God uh, a lot of times saves us from suffering if we accept him. Yet here we are decades and decades and decades later, and Daniel's still a slave. It's not going to change. He's going to die enslaved. He's been faithful to God over and over and over again in his adult life. And he's even been deemed valuable by his oppressors. So much so that, that, that they're not using his Babylonian name. They're, they're coming and they're using his real name. And yet, as an older man, he is, he is there being faithful again as a slave. Obedience is not rainbows and sunshine. It does not mean that we always feel God or feel good. Obedience looks like facing the facade, facing the coping mechanisms that we use to get by. Obedience begins with reoccurring every single day, making the decision to stop running from the things that we find ourselves running from and instead taking the grace of God. 
Or as, or as Christ tells us in the Gospels, that we are to take up our cross daily and die to ourselves. And from there, it is living into what God has made you to be. Thankfully, uh, we do know that God gives us significance, as, as we talked about. Uh, and one of the ways uh, that we can find what that practically looks like is by uh, asking some questions. Uh, one question in particular uh, is a question that my grad school often asks us, which is called the central integration question, or your CIQ. You know, grad schools like to use fancy uh, acronyms like that as opposed to just saying, Hey, this is a question uh, that we should all answer. But we should all answer this question. And this is what that question is. At this point in your journey, how do you envision your call to God's mission in the world? It's something we all should be able to answer. What is, what is God laying on your heart how do you feel like you fit into that? Because as people who believe in God, we are all called to do certain things, but then there's also individual things that we are also, uh, God has laid on our hearts, and we have to figure out what that is for each one of us. So again, it says this, at this point in your journey, how do you envision your call to God's mission in the world? Let me make one last point here uh, before I, I close Daniel in the stories in his 80s. I've said that a few times. Uh, he was taken into captivity as a teenager. So he's lived his entire adult life in slavery. And this, this empire is about to fall, and there's another one that's about to take place. And again, he's going to continue to be a slave. And yet, he remains faithful. He continues to step up to the moment and continues to say, hey, I'm going to be uh, the voice of God in this moment where these, these kings are asking all of these other people, hey, I need you to interpret this and you to interpret this, and none of it works out. Daniel's there saying, I, I can help. He's faithful. And obedience in every single season of his life looks a little bit similar and a little bit different because he's at different seasons of life. And remember, he's, he's not just like doing some small thing. He's foreshadowing this king's death and the destruction of his empire. cost him his own life, and yet, here he is. He remained faithfully obedient. So whatever season of life you find yourself in, how are you called to be faithfully obedient right now? Whether, whether you find yourself in your 80s, or, or you are only in Frederick for six months, or, or you are coming out as we all are of this, this crazy last 15 months, what does it look like for you to be faithfully obedient right now? Don't, don't negate where you're at or how long you're going to be here or your age. But what does it look like right now? It is in Jesus that we find our significance, where, where we can face the writings on the wall, even though we may be scared, and where we can embrace what faithful obedience to our call to God's mission in the world looks like. Let's pray. God, you, you are good. Uh, and I am grateful for this story, uh, this story that has uh, survived from the book of Daniel, that we can learn uh, from Daniel's faithfulness, that we can learn uh, from uh, the failing of Belshazzar here, God, and that we can learn from your, your constant presence in this book. God, may we be people who, who seek out obedience, 
who, who stop running away from uh, the things that we are afraid of or that we don't want to face. And may, may we find our significance today, God, in you. It's in your son's name we pray.